So one of the things that I don't know if you notice this when you have conversations with other people or uh, maybe especially if you're not a native English speaker, like maybe you grew up somewhere else or you spoke another language when you were growing up. I don't know if you notice this, but for a lot of us, sometimes we use words and we don't all think they mean the same thing. Sometimes we use words and we maybe come from somewhere where this word, and by somewhere not necessarily another country, but even just in your family, this word that we use means something. And then when you try to use it in a different context, it can get very confusing because people don't associate it in the same way. The reality is that language, for better or worse, can evolve over time. Words that were used 20, 30, 40, even 100 years ago don't always have the same meaning or weight that we attach to it today. And so sometimes when that happens, if we're used to how a word was used at a certain time or place, It can get really confusing when somebody else is using that word and we think it means something different. And usually, if you're like most of us, uh, you don't ask for clarification. Someone will say something and you're like, oh yeah, that's that's great. And you just kind of let it go. But sometimes we mean something very different by the words that we use than what people understand them to be. And this morning we're going to talk about three words that can be very much misunderstood, very much misused, and have been very much so. There are three words that over time have come to mean different things to different people, but I really want to look at what they meant in the first place and why that matters so much. As we've been in this series on the Apostles' Creed called What Should We Believe? We're looking at what the church in history has believed and what we need to maybe hold back, hold on to again, go back to, that we sometimes miss. Before we jump into what those three words are, let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father, I thank you that we get to call you Father. Uh, that as uh, we sang those songs this morning, especially that last one that reflected on uh, what we believe, we're invited to know you more and to be with you more, and to understand you more in this context here this morning, but for the rest of our lives. There's something incredibly powerful, God, when we sing or say those words that we believe, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. And I pray that we this morning can open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you have for us, so that we could fully confess, profess those words in confidence, in clarity, knowing what we mean and what we believe. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, as we've been in this series called What Should We Believe? We've been looking at the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is one of many creeds that have happened over the history of the church, but it's probably the earliest one. It's the earliest one that we have at least kind of compiled and recorded in the way we have it. And the way that we have it is based off an even older statement that was adapted in the first two centuries of the church's life. And with this, with this understanding of belief, the church has said, well, this is what we hold to. This is what we should believe. And historically, the Apostles' Creed has been used Uh, in churches throughout, since it was written, as a baptismal creed. That means that if you were someone who was going to be baptized in a church, 
you would have to say, I believe these things and hold to them. It was kind of the standard for acceptance into the church family. And so as we've been exploring these statements, there are things that maybe some of us have said, well, I kind of wish there was more on this or maybe less on this. And there may be some words that get used that we're not always so sure of, like the ones we might use today. But there's a reason why, historically, the church has said, this is our baseline. This is what we hold to. One of the challenges that we face continuously is asking ourselves, is this what I hold to? And if we are saying no, then we need to do some self-examination in that. So the creed starts off like this. As we've read before, it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And that's where we're going to be sticking to today, the Holy Catholic Church. Three simple words, but three simple words that have a profound density to them, and we could also very much misunderstand them. And so I want to look at each of these words, maybe not in the order that I should, but in the order I want to, and we're going to look at why this matters. So when you hear these words, maybe ask yourself, well, what comes to mind? What am I thinking when I hear the term Holy Catholic Church? Well, there's a good chance that it starts with that word that's in the middle, Catholic. Most of us, when we're exposed to this word Catholic, we think the Roman Catholic Church. That's, the, that's what we think of. And so for some of us, if maybe if you come from a particularly Baptist background, or reality is that most of us would be what's called Protestant, so not Roman Catholic, we would be wondering, well, why is this word in the creed? And we could start to think, well, what is this implying? The truth is this creed was written well before the Roman Catholic Church was established and called the Roman Catholic Church. So that term that's used in this writing by the early church and us today has a significance beyond that institutional church, whatever we may think of it. The word Catholic essentially comes to mean universal. Like, it is the universal church. But deeper than that, it means for all time. So not just universal in the sense that it's every church, but it's the church for all time. So when we speak of the Catholic church with a small c, we don't mean the Roman Catholic church that maybe some of us are part of. We mean the universal for all time church that is established as on Jesus that we're all a part of, regardless of our denominational background. So when we speak of the Catholic Church, it means all church, all time. And if you have any idea about history, or even if you have any idea about your neighbors or people in your neighborhood who believe different things about church, you know we all haven't agreed forever. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But that's not the concern of today or the concern of the creed in particular. 
The point is, the authors of the creed wanted us to understand, after all the statements about what we believe about who God the Father is, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we too need to believe and profess in the holy Catholic Church, so that church of all time. So the second word we want to look at is that word church. So the word church, for many of us who are familiar in, uh, we've talked about this before here, maybe you're here, but when we talk about church, we're not just meaning like this building that we're inside right now, that institution, right? Or that service you go to on Sunday. Sometimes culturally that's what church comes to mean. We'll say, well, I'm going to church, which is true. But there's a bigger meaning behind that word. In the Greek, the word that gets used is ecclesia. And ecclesia means called out, like a people who are called out from others. So in the midst of a community, there can be many people, but the church are those who are called out to that something. Ultimately, it's that profession in Jesus. And so the Catholic church is the people of all time who've been called out and believe in Jesus. That's what it's speaking of. It is a called out assembly. Now the third word, which is the first word in the statement, is the one that many of us might get tripped up on even more, holy. Holy, we have all different ideas that come to mind. And most of us probably when we think of holy, we think of that person or persons who are incredibly critical of us or others. They're so holy. They're so critical of everybody else. They're holy rollers. We have all these terms that we use. And holy kind of has this impression that it's somebody who thinks they're better than everybody else. Somebody who thinks that they know something or do something or don't do something better than everybody else. And so we sometimes, culturally, maybe you don't, but I know sometimes I do and many of us do, have this impression about this word that it's really a bad word. It's a word that is offensive to us. And we think that, oh, they're so holy, like they think they're so much better than us. And for some people, like if you don't go to church regularly and if you maybe are distant from the church in some way, sometimes that's the impression of the general sense church you have, is that they, oh, they think they're so much better than us. They're so holy. Well, that word holy is an important word. It's a word that I think it's lost its meaning and we need to get it back. Because it is essential, not just in the statement and the creed, but in who we are in understanding what it means to follow Jesus. That word holy uh, comes in particular in the New Testament. There's a word that gets used, hagios, that means to be unlike other things or to be completely other or set apart. And ultimately, it just means different. To be holy, to be other, to be different, to be set apart to be not like everything else. When the Bible uses a term holy, and when this creed uses the term holy to speak about the church, meaning those people throughout history, including us, who follow Jesus, we're spoke of, of people who are meant to be holy. And to be holy means to be not like everybody else, to be different, to be other. And if you're anything like me, 
or maybe you're nothing like me, you sometimes don't want to feel different. You don't want to be unlike everybody else. You go through this in multiple times in your life, from a little child. All of us, we want acceptance and love. So when we're little, we want to fit in. And so maybe we'll tell stories to people about how cool our life is or something like that in, in school, in elementary school, so that other people will love us. And later on in life, we do the same thing, just maybe a little more subtle, and maybe we've learned to uh, ignore certain parts of our lives so that we can say, well, oh, I'm just like you. We all want acceptance and love. And the idea of different can make us feel like we're not going to get that. But often in our desire for acceptance and love from other people, we ignore what God is offering us. And part of that is an understanding of why it's important to be holy and what it means to be holy. The Apostle Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, uh, we accredit two letters in our New Testament and our Bible to him. And the first one in particular, First Peter, really talks about holiness. In fact, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, a statement that's made in Leviticus, where God says, be holy because I am holy. And in many ways, his whole letter is showing what that means and why that matters. Holiness is a mark, a descriptor of the church, which means it should be a descriptor of us as people. And as much as we might struggle with this idea of being different, because sometimes we think different means not normal, and we don't like that, there's a purpose behind it. 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle wrote this. He said, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In the song we sang before, in the creed that we have used, there's a profession that Jesus is Lord. To profess that Jesus is Lord is a central statement to the history of the church and to us, hopefully, to say that, well, if Jesus is Lord, meaning the, the one we follow, the one we trust to be guide and ruler, then I am not and no one else is. And so when we profess that Jesus is Lord, when we make this bold statement, we're saying, this is who I follow. And Peter, as he is writing to early church members and to us through history, is writing about how we need to move away from behaviors and attitudes that are bad and move towards God through this craving of pure spiritual milk to feed ourselves, to nourish ourselves on what is good and what is from God. He continues, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is using imagery that Paul also uses in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians of speaking about Jesus as the cornerstone. Some of you who know much more about architecture and about 
construction and masonry and all those wonderful things that I do, but know that a cornerstone is essential in building. It is what you base everything else on when you build. You place this stone, and it is the guide and the line that you try to line everything up by. And if you don't, things get wobbly, houses fall down. So Paul uses this image, Peter uses this image, that Christ is that stone. He calls it the living stone. And as Christ is that stone, you too are living stones that build up this building of the church. You are part of it. You are not excluded, you are part of it. And in being part of it, you are lining yourself up with that profession that Jesus is Lord and should be aligned to it. And if you're not, the house won't be stable. The church won't be stable. It says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, as he's writing to this church community, these people who are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in their everyday life, just like us, was reminding them who they are. They are living stones. They are part of this living, real thing called the church, just like me and you. And that church is built in the guidelines on the foundation, but most of all, understanding of who Jesus is, how he lived, and how we are to be like him. And when we are aligned up to that, the church is strong. And Peter will say four specific things. He says that they are a chosen people, that you are people whom God has chosen. Meaning the God, the creator of the universe, the one that we say in the creed has made everything, who is known in the person of Jesus and is with us in the Holy Spirit, chose you. Could have chosen anybody, but chose you. And in fact, did choose a whole bunch of other people too. And that offer is open to everyone. But you are chosen people. So the church is people who are chosen by God, who have inherent value just because they exist. They're a chosen people. They're a royal priesthood. Royal, the idea of a lineage, of, of monarchy, of, of royalty. Priesthood, individuals who have access to God that maybe didn't know that. They're a holy nation a set-apart, different people. 
meaning a holy nation. So beyond just where they've ethnically come from, which is important and good and makes people people, they're also a whole separate thing called a holy nation. A group of people who make their own culture within the context of God's kingdom. They're God's special possession. Peter is listing out who you are and what you're meant to be different, unlike the rest of the world. Peter, as he's trying to explain to this early church who are dealing with many of the same stuff that we deal with today, this desire to be accepted, to be liked, to be uh, part of a community, as he's writing to this church that deal with the same things we do in many ways, he's saying, you're supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. You're holy. This is the invitation that everybody has, is to be unlike others. And again, this can be really offensive sounding, because who wants to be different? Who wants to feel weird? But it's not weird for the sake of weird, it's different for the sake of God. That God's purposes and power are demonstrated in his people who are different than the rest of the world. So if we look exactly like, not just necessarily on looks, I'm not meaning that way, but in the, if we do everything, if we listen to everything, if we read everything, if we write everything, if we uh, act in every single way, if we watch every show, if we, if we do everything just like everybody else, and the only difference is we show up here on a Sunday, well, that's not different. That's actually exactly the same. If we believe all the same things that everybody else believes, if we, we buy into everything that everybody else buys into and we just show up online or in person, that's not holy. That's not following Jesus. And so the creed says that we are a holy Catholic church. We believe it. And to believe that we are meant to be different, unlike the world for all time. Now, for some of us, we will hear that and we'll think certain things, and hopefully you'll let me get to the end of this, and hopefully I'll give you a different impression than a negative one if you have one right now. You're meant to be different not for the sake of differentness. You're meant to be different not for the sake of being cruel or mean, but you're meant to be different, unlike the world, for Jesus' sake, for what God is doing in this world, which is making it better. There are wonderful people who don't go to church, who don't believe in Jesus, who, who believe things that are completely opposite than you. In fact, there are people who are more wonderful than me who believe things that are, uh, what I would say, wrong. It doesn't change that they, don't, that they do good things or they have good qualities. But the church, us, we're meant to be different. So what is that difference? In the early church, we find in the book of Acts that the, there were certain things that the church devoted themselves to that shaped who they were and how they made an impact in their world. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a passage that many of us might know, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the early church followers of Jesus devoted themselves to what the apostles taught. The reason why we call this the Apostles' Creed is because it's based on the teaching of the apostles. So the early church leaders, the people who were with Jesus. 
Now, the apostles didn't write the Apostles' Creed, but it's based on their teachings. So your church was dedicated, committed to these teachings. To say, well, this is who we are, this is what we believe. There is probably more than what's in the creed, but these are the essentials. And to fellowship, meaning they cared for each other in community. Sometimes in churches, we call that thing that we do after the service, which is coffee, fellowship time. And, and that's wonderful, and it's great, and it's meant to be a time where you connect with people, and we'd love for you to join us after the service for it. But fellowship is deeper than that. Fellowship is real care for each other. Fellowship is what I see happen in our small groups here. It's where I see people who get together weekly, not just to study Scripture and to explore who God is more, but actually get to know each other and get to ask people how they are really doing. And they get to be in a place that's safe, safe for them, where they can be open but not soft, where they can be challenged. I see that happening in our small groups at Bromley where people really care about each other and are there to meet each other's needs. That's fellowship. That's real fellowship. It's not just, hey, did you watch the hockey game last night? Which is important stuff too, don't get me wrong. But it's really going deeper. So the early church committed themselves to what the apostles believed and taught, and they committed themselves to caring for each other as a church. Jesus said that the distinction of his people, of his followers, would be that they love each other. Not that they love the world, that they love each other, those people who follow Jesus, which is a really hard thing to do, if we're honest. Sometimes it's easier to love people who are nothing like us. But in the church, we have something in common. Jesus says that's the distinguishing mark. It's fellowship. And they committed themselves to the breaking of bread, which we often think of as communion, which is a wonderful, important thing, which is the memory, the remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross, his death and his resurrection, his forgiveness of our sins, his giving of life in all of its fullness to us. But there's more to it as well. In the context and culture that these people were living and existing and being the church, they had a period of time where people were oppressed greatly. They were taxed incredibly high, and as as much as we might be struggling with inflation and other things, For some people, they had no means of gathering food, and we still feel that today. And so they would sell everything they'd have or go into debt trying to just feed themselves. And one of the things that the political leaders would do, knowing that if you oppress people for so long, they'll eventually revolt and hurt you and probably get you out of power, they would entertain them and give them just a little something so that they would kind of appease them. So they do these things called bread and circus where if you pledged allegiance to the emperor of the time, the Roman emperor of the time, they would give you bread, and they would entertain you in, in, in games like in the Colosseum and things like that. So if you professed that the emperor was Lord, you would be given food for a day and entertained. And so what the early church did is instead of you know, professing the emperor was Lord, they professed, Jesus was Lord, so they couldn't get that food. So they cared for each other, and they broke bread together. They shared meals together. For those who didn't have, they would have. For those who had, they would share. And so this early church, when they celebrated communion, they had meals together. They had real caring for each other in fellowship. 
And so while it is, yes, communion, it's so much more. And finally, to prayer, which I would say is worship. The early church, the Marxist early church, were that they would commit themselves to what the church has believed since its inception, the apostles' teaching. They would excuse me, commit themselves to caring for each other through fellowship, commit themselves to meeting each other's physical needs as well as reflecting on the goodness of God and what Jesus has done for them in the breaking of bread. And they would worship the God of the universe together and pray. They were set apart. They were unlike everybody else. They were holy. Holiness isn't just to being different for the sake of different. It's being unlike the systems, the reality of sin in our world for what God is doing now and inviting us to be part of. Jesus said in John 15, verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Now, hate might seem like a really strong word, and you might think, well, I don't want to be hated. It just means love less. If everything that you believe is in complete agreement and every way you act is in complete agreement with everything, like let's say our government does or our schools teach or uh, you know, whatever we see on TV, you're not aligning yourself with that cornerstone who is Jesus. You're meant to be different, unlike the world. doesn't mean everything they do is wrong. It just means not everything is right. And when you're different, you are loved less. And it's hard, and it hurts, and none of us want it because we want to be loved and accepted. We want to please people. But you're called to be holy. Because the God of the universe is holy. You're meant to be unlike everybody else and more like Jesus. That's what holiness is. And when we live like that, and I'm not someone who's going to say, oh yeah, I'm perfect because I'm not. And there are a lot of things that probably some of you would say, oh, that, you shouldn't do that. And I would say, oh, I didn't realize. Or, no, that's not a big deal for me. We have different things, each of us, that are away from God, and we might not always realize it. But you're called to be set apart. You're called to be unlike everything else. You're the holy Catholic Church. You're part of people throughout history who've represented Jesus. Not to be hated or unliked because they're mean or cruel, but to be different so people don't always understand you. And when you're different, you show them the goodness of God in ways that you might not always realize. You're meant to be unlike the world so you can be like Jesus and hopefully give people the hope that he offers. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God unlike any other, that you are holy, that you in your infinite wisdom, goodness, and love chose us and invite us to be like you, different. 
You invite us to be people who represent you by living lives that reflect you are real. And as sometimes we struggle with what that looks like and what that means, and maybe we, we don't think some things are a big deal or we think some things are a bigger deal than others, we're wrestling with figuring that out. And I thank you, God, that you give us the Holy Spirit so that we can know and we can discern what it means to be holy, what it means to be different for your kingdom. I thank you that because of Jesus, uh, we are not just citizens of our city, of our earth, or uh, holding on to those backgrounds that we have, which are good and wonderful, but we are citizens of your kingdom. And in fact, we are a royal priesthood in that kingdom. We have direct access to you, and we are uh, forgiven and given life in all of its fullness, and I thank you for that. I pray that we uh, wrestle with these terms of holy Catholic church, and we come to know what it means to be someone who lives a life of holiness, who tries to be uh, continuously submitting to you, Jesus, as Lord. That, Holy Spirit, you, you guide us in our decisions, you guide us in our discernment, you guide us in our direction to be more and more people of your kingdom and not this earth. Not that we wish to escape it, but that we wish to share your goodness with those we know here now. As we wrestle with these things, God, I pray that your spirit inspires us and challenges us and helps us know what it means to be following you and holds us accountable to what you're calling us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.